We our topic is Section 504 as it applies to schools. And we have with us Keith Butler, who is an attorney for Indiana Disability Rights, and he will introduce himself in a moment. I'm Kathy Boswell with InSource. My co-host is Jill Summerlot, and we're, we're grateful to have you in attendance today. So at this point, I am going to um, go ahead and turn the presentation over to Keith. All right, well, thank you. Uh, as you said, my name is Keith Butler and I work for Indiana Disability Rights. Here we go. Um, so he, here's kind of like a rundown of what we're gonna talk about today. I'm, I'm gonna kind of go over briefly what Indiana Disability Rights is and, and my role there. And as far as the 504 topics, um, just talk about 504 generally, talk about eligibility, uh, what a 504 plan looks like. Um, seems like we always get discipline questions, you know, for I, IDEA um, or 504. And if you don't know what IDEA <laughs> is yet, we'll, we'll go over that as well. And then some of the procedural uh, rights under 504. So I'm a now senior attorney with uh, Indiana Disability Rights. I've, I've been there since about 2010, um, about two years after I graduated from law school. So most of my law career has been at IDR. Uh, currently I'm the head of both the education and employment teams, although I do mostly education cases. We have another uh, attorney in our team that does most of the employment cases. Um, so we've, we've kind of switched things around how we, it's been a little while now, but um, ever since we've had this team set up, I've been the attorney for the education team. So I've been doing this uh, basically concentrating on education for quite a while now. Okay, this is a uh, video um, that just was created by what's called NDRN, National Disability Rights Network. Um, there are national organizations, so there's what's called a PNA or Protection Advocacy Group in every state. Indiana Disability Rights is is the one um, for Indiana, um, and this video just kind of explains what um, what a PNA is and what we do in just real general terms. It's, it's looking at the bottom of a two and a half minute video, so it's pretty quick. I'm not going to try and click on it today, partially because I'm just uh, a little bit worried <laughs> technologically about whether it works. It basically involved opening up another window. Um, so with screen sharing, I'm not gonna click on it, but we're gonna link to it in the chat. So if you're kind of interested in what PNAs are generally, um, it's it's pretty good explainer. Um, like I said, we're put, put it in the chat and, and gonna have in a video. So uh, there you go. Um, so as far as IDR's mission, uh, here it is, I won't necessarily read it, but protect and promote uh, individuals um, disabilities and you know, he talks about empowerment and, and advocacy um, and then our vision um, here so I, I, I guess what I, I, I say generally is with uh, we can handle pretty like uh, certainly a lot of, of kind of like legal type issues that, that an individual with disabilities would have we're, we're always on the uh, uh, like representing the, the the individual with the disability, so that's kind of the the side that we're on um, when we do that. Uh, but it's certainly more than just um, 
education cases, uh, PNAs were were started uh, to to have uh, access and monitor uh, people living in facilities. That um, was kind of discovered that that was very uh, under uh, you know a, a population that was was very vulnerable to abuse and neglect, and and so infection advocacy groups were were allowed access into those facilities to kind of represent, uh, help people represent their interests in those areas. And we've expanded out since then. We, you know, we'll do, uh, like I said, employment, education. We do uh, just for like general ADA, Americans with Disabilities Act cases. We do uh, some voting rights uh, things with people with disabilities, so like a whole whole wide array. Um, so here is my contact information at the top. That is my cell phone you can get a get a hold of me i'm pretty easy to reach there's my email address um so what i always like to say is if you have a question about this presentation or sort of a education in general question um just it's completely fine to call me directly if after listening to this presentation you think that you know you or somebody you know has a disability related case that that you'd want idr to open i just ask that you call the intake number uh, we have it takes staff that, that it does a good job of making sure that we get all the correct information uh, you know uh, about the, the, the caller where if you called me I would probably not input it into the database <laughs> correctly so um, it's just much easier to call uh, intake staff and then that, that'll kind of get routed to our case opening process. Okay so 504 uh, just kind of big picture overview what the word 504 actually refers to is Section 504 of the Rehabilitation Act of 1973. So in other words, this is giant um, piece of legislation, and that is one section of it. So that's that's what it refers to. Kind of like 401k technically refers to something in the you know the IRS tax code is is Section 401k. So that's the same thing here. 504 is Section 504 of this Rehab Act. Um, it's a broader piece of legislation, so this is, does not just include education. Uh, there's employment, architectural barriers, um, and uh, just you know, general non-discrimination clauses in it. The other kind of main area of education law that you're probably familiar with, or if you hear, hear the term IEP or Individualized Education Program, Normally, what that's referring to um, is the Individuals with uh, Disabilities Education Act, or IDEA. And then here in Indiana, if you heard the term Article 7, that is Indiana's regulations implementing IDEA. And uh, I'm going to try my best not to talk in acronyms, but if you're at all familiar with uh, you know, education law, just special ed law, there are just, you know, so many acronyms it's, it's ridiculous and so sometimes i fall into that trap and i'm gonna try my best <laughs> not to so um it's like this is yeah like i said ida article 7 which is uh kind of the other main area of, of special ed law uh so the differences between the two um I've, this is an all-inclusive i kind of created this table just to go over some things Quickly, I, people generally, if, if they are eligible for IDEA or Article 7, they, they try and um, uh, get services under that. 
Um, there, there might be some reasons why if you're eligible for both, you might choose a 504, but, but I would say typically most people, if you're sort of eligible for IDA, you choose that. And then if you can qualify for 504, but you can't qualify for IDA, you pick that. Um, so the overall goal of IDA is another acronym, FAPE, which stands for Free Appropriate Public Education. Um, and then on the 504 side, again, this is part of a, a bigger act, but, but the point of the legislation was equal access for people with disabilities and programs receiving federal assistance. So any sort of program uh, like that exists, like say, so you, you know, think about it as, um, you know, like a, I don't know, like a, a, a public library, say, um, uh, you know, the, the person with disabilities has a right to access that just the same as someone without disabilities under, under the legislation. And we'll kind of get into what that means in regards to education a little bit more specifically. Um, so one reason I think that IDA slash Article 7 is, is more commonly used is it's very specific. There's a lot of statutes, a lot of regulations, both federal and state that spell out exactly what is supposed to happen, what the school's obligations are, what, what uh, students' rights are, uh, you know, down to timelines and, and um, certain days and like who's supposed to be at case conference meetings. Uh, 504 just doesn't have that level of detail or much more general rules. Sometimes you can get the specific rules, but a lot of times they are part of uh, like the Federal Department of Education's guidance or you have to look at court case decisions. Um, so there isn't just sort of like this one area you can say, okay, this is what, what has to be done. Um, and then the other, I'd say major difference is eligibility. So to be eligible for IDEA, you have to meet a certain category of, of eligibility. Um, and there's, I believe, 13 categories total. Um, so one of them say is like autism spectrum disorder, another is orthopedic impairment. Um, I'm not gonna necessarily <laughs> list all of them, but like but the, the idea is that you have to say, okay, I'm eligible under one of these categories where 504 is a more general requirement. And, and I just have it written down here, eligibility is based on if an individual has an impairment which substantially limits one or more major life activity, as we'll kind of get into later in the presentation, learning is considered a major life activity. So, um, you know, if you have a disability that affects your learning, um, then then you would would qualify. I think I said this already, but generally, you know, if you're eligible under IDEA, Individuals with Disabilities Education Act, people try and uh, get eligibility under that. And then if not, they, they look, look at 504. Um, so, but having said that, kind of like the other side of that point, I guess, is that 504 was created before um, IDA. It's also uh, created before the Americans with Disabilities Act or ADA. So it, it's, you can, in general, I, I guess get a lot of the things, like if, if IDEA never existed, 504 is, is meant to be a, like a standalone piece of legislation. So like if IDEA didn't exist, you could still probably through concepts of 504, um, get a lot of the things that you can do under IDEA, just under that, that general framework we were talking about before. So um, I think a lot of times there's a perception that certain things can't be done under a 504 that you have to switch over to um, uh, like an IEP or 
or uh, that that sort of thing. And really, that's not true. I mean, the, the 504 was created before this ever went into effect. So there's no, I guess, for lack of a better term, like ceiling to to services. It, it's more of like the, um, that that if you get to a certain point, a lot of people just choose to switch over to IEA. But there's really no reason you couldn't do a lot of these. Uh, services with the 504 plan and it wasn't it wasn't created to be this like sort of like minimal amount of stuff that you get before you're eligible for IDA it was it was created before then so um I kind of touched on this but a lot of the concepts that, that you're sort of familiar with in, in special education um or that you hear in I I in sort of IEP idea uh IDA terms are part of 504, but they're just written much more generally. So this is what 504 it, like is or does. Um, it, an individual with a disability uh, who's qualified for a program or activity um, shall not be excluded for participation in or denied the benefits of the program or subject to discrimination because of his disability. And this applies to any program that receives uh, federal financial assistance. I think it's pretty safe to say that pretty much any public school gets federal assistance. I'm, <laughs> I'm certainly not aware of any exception to that. So, um, you know, that part, I don't think you need to worry so much about, you know, with your student at a public school. Um, you know, if your student goes to a private school, then, you know, there might need to be some kind of fact finding with that. But, I guess that's something else worth pointing out. The difference between 504 and um, IDEA is, is sometimes you know, like a private school. Um, it's a little into the weeds, but isn't isn't held. You, know, you don't have isn't part of IDEA in the sense that they have to create an IAP. Um, there there is this what's called a service plan that um, is part of the program. Again, this gets a little bit more complicated. But but if the private school gets federal funding, then they would be subject to 504 laws. So um, for anybody familiar with Americans with Disabilities Act, basically the- Keith, can yes. I, I'm sorry, can I interrupt you? I do have a question. Yeah, absolutely. I have found that schools seem more familiar with IDEA due process hearings, but less familiar with 504 hearings. Yeah had a 504 hearing with schools on section 504 issues and if so um, uh, is the process procedures the same and I do think you're going to be addressing that but go ahead yeah um, so yeah uh, uh, so real briefly there is there's something called a 504 the school has to have a 504 coordinator or the school system uh, and they, they have a requirement to have a hearing and an impartial hearing process within the school system. I would say one major difference is like once that's exhausted or I believe even if you don't go through that, you can file you know, like directly to federal or federal or state court with um, a 504 complaint um, where the, you know, with IDEA, there's what's called due process where there's a, this administrative procedure. And um, yeah, we'll, we'll kind of touch on this later, but there's a, <laughs> It gets a little bit in the weeds, but um, a lot of times with a 504, to, to get to court with 504, you have to look at the IDEA's requirements on exhaustion, which basically means that if you can go through the IDEA uh, due process procedure, um, then you have to do that. 
to, to before you can file in regular court. But I guess the, the real high level answer is they're, they're, the school system's required to have a 504 coordinator and they ha are required to have a, a hearing process. Um, I, I haven't um, done that personally yet, um, I think typically, but issues that we would get to, we'd probably, again, look at uh, IDEA eligibility. And if, then once they're eligible, then you would sort of file under, under that, that um, you know, that set of rules, the due process set of rules there. So, and, and we do, we, are, we do have slides on this later on. So, um, uh, you know, I can go through those and certainly if there's more questions on it, that's fine as well. Keith, this is Jill. Yep. I do have a person that's posted on our Facebook live page and she states, my grandson was tested while on his ADHD meds for his disability. So got a 504 because while on his meds, his grades are decent. I feel testing should be done while not on meds. You do not take an eye exam with your glasses on. So how can you test a child while they are on meds? This seems counterproductive and unfair to the students who, as they grow, weight changes, medication changes, they fall between the cracks. Now the rules have changed that they can be expelled, which just changed this year, 2020. Okay, so I think the overall question is sort of the efficacy or like the accuracy of the, of the testing. Like, obviously I'm not an expert in what proper testing procedures are, but there is a right to, you know, appropriate evaluation. Um, and, and I'm speaking both in terms of the IDA or Individuals with Disabilities Education Act and in 504, both of them have clauses that, that you have a right to evaluation. And part of that is a right to evaluation that's done, you know, by sort of generally accepted uh, practices within the, you know, the relevant expert community. So you can challenge, so let me start with um, IDEA because I think in this case they're saying that they felt like they should be eligible under IDEA. If you're unhappy with an evaluation under uh, like an IEP or IDEA, then you have a, a right to what's called a independent education evaluation or IEE, um, where you can contest that, where you can get your own expert to do to testing, and then the the conference committee has to consider those results. They don't necessarily have to follow them, they have to consider them. And a lot of times this outside expert is, is gonna, you know, be at least as, as qualified, if not more so than, than uh, the, the school's testing procedures. So um, that would be one way to look at it. Um, I, I think the other issue I spot in there is just because you get good grades doesn't disqualify you from eligibility. I mean, I think it could be a factor like, you really need these extra services if you're already getting good grades. I could see that being brought up, but but um, you know the standard of appropriate public education and and whether this is sort of a, a detriment to you receiving FAPE, um, you know, there, there's nothing in there that says well just because you get good grades that, that isn't somehow affecting your education, or right? you could be getting better grades, or you maybe you're spending you know three hours doing homework where somebody without disabilities spending one hour and, and with some extra help, that wouldn't be the case, right? So good grades are not certainly a blanket disqualifying factor for, for whether you qualify or not. Uh, so that's that's another issue. Um, and I'm trying, Jill, is there something else in there that I, I didn't answer or? 
No, I think you got them all. Thank you. Okay. All right. Okay, so eligibility, uh, again, we're back to 504. Um, there's these three factors here. I'm gonna go through each of these in, in later slides, um, but these are the, the three ways you qualify. The, the first is pretty, is kind of the more basic one where if you have a physical or mental impairment that substantially limits one or more of your major life activities. Again, as I've stated, learning is a major life activity, um, so which is obviously relevant to here with education cases. And then we'll talk about has a record of or is regarded as uh, in a little bit more detail in, in, in further slides. And we, we touched on this already, but 504 eligibility is different than Article 7 or IDA in that under those two, you, under IDA, you have to qualify as in a certain category. Um, I listed some of these here. Um, there, are, there, is, there are some kind of just generalish categories in, in IDA to qualify under one being what's called other health impairment or there's one for a learning disability. Um, so there is you know, some sort of like wiggle room um, in there, but, but you have to qualify under a specific category, but be evaluated for that category and, and be and qualify under it where, um, as you'll see here, uh, I, with, with uh, 504, you get into this more general physical or mental impairment. Um, and what that means, okay, so the thing to keep in mind here is physical or mental impairment is, is defined very, very broadly. Um, there was, going back several years now, a period of time under um, Americans with Disabilities Act or ADA law slash 504 law, where the Supreme Court actually kind of sort of interpreting the statute as, as defining this eligibility a little bit more narrowly, like people, they would find that somebody didn't have um, a, a disability under, under the standard and Congress went back and, and redefined uh, some of these statutes to make it clear that what, what they wanted was a very broad interpretation. In other words, we're, we're not so much looking at, you know, obviously there is, you have to show some sort of physical or mental impairment here, but, but the, the concept is, more the focus should be on on the second part is like well what is there something that that is um, uh, I think I'll say like impeding somebody from participating in in the activity and, and and is what they're wanting as a result to let them participate better reasonable more so than getting into the nitty gritty about whether they have um, a disability or not. So, okay, Keith, I've got a, I've got another question, yeah. and I think this is a this kind of fits with what you're discussing at the moment. It says yeah. my daughter was diagnosed with ASD autism level two at the age of eight this past year. She attends a private Christian school. They say she only needs a 504 because her academics are not affected by autism, but the 504 is only suggestive, where an IEP has to be followed and a 504 meeting is only required one time per year. And then she at this person added, how do I make the 504 more followed rather than suggested? Yeah. Well, I would certainly take issue with the statement that a 504 is suggestive rather than, you know, has to be followed. Um, so I think whoever told her that, you know, I, I would I would take issue with that statement. Um, so yeah, with private schools, okay, so 
if you attend what's called like a parental place, so you so the family decides to place a student in, in a private school, then where that private school is located, the um, the school district where that private um, school is located has to have what's called an individualized service plan. Um, so that's through the like the local school district, okay? And that's kind of the IEP equivalent um, for that area. Now, typically uh, with those, you're gonna have things more like, uh, you know, the student needs occupational therapy, physical therapy, speech, you know, kind of like general things like that. They're not gonna be so much focused on, um, particular academic services, like obviously they wouldn't control whether the student needs like more time, you know, like, I think I'll say this because like there isn't an official limit on this, but you know, uh, let, let, let's say a student would benefit from sitting in the front of the classroom, right? That, that might not be part of the service plan because the, the general, the um, that school district isn't the one actually providing the education the private school is, right? So, so there's a, a that, is sort of the IEP equivalent. And, and again, it's just the same eligibility as, as normal IDEA. You have to meet one of those categories. Autism spectrum disorder is one of those categories. Um, so if you meet that, then you're entitled to this, this service plan through the, the local school district. Now, if this private school has federal funding, then, then they would be subject to 504. Um, and again, this is theoretically totally separate from, I mean, I think perhaps you'd want to coordinate with the service plan, but uh, you know it's it's a different entity responsible for it, and and so the the private school themselves would then be responsible for a 504 plan, and then sort of all the things we're talking about today would would apply. Um, so, and and maybe one other thing just that popped in my head while we're talking about this, and maybe we're getting a little IDA heavy for a 504, but there's a difference between diagnosis and eligibility. Think of practical terms. If you've been diagnosed with autism, it'd be kind of difficult for a school system to say that you're not eligible under the autism category, but they are technically separate. Like, so when you're, you could not have an autism diagnosis, but meet the eligibility, you know, category uh, for, for autism. Like, you know, you're not required to have an outside diagnosis. And, and theoretically, you could have an outside diagnosis and the school could, could say, well, you, don't meet the eligibility standard. I mean, I think hopefully in most time cases that would be a little bit <laughs> tougher to argue, but but they are technically two separate things. Um, you know, a, a private diagnosis and, and meeting the eligibility categories under IDEA. Since this student does have a 504 plan, then as you said, all of these components of 504 are applicable. And you also said that uh, the 504 plan is not suggestive that yes it is in fact required to be followed is that correct yes absolutely correct okay yeah okay all right thank you sure um so we're back in the slide with the physical list of physical impairment uh, i mean the, the point of putting these down um is just again to reinforce the idea this is very broad it's like this is meant to encompass you know, a lot of, a lot of areas. Um, and again, the focus shouldn't be so much on eligibility, but on whether, you know, the 504 plan is, is kind of like actually needed to um, help the student get access to, to education. And then same thing on the mental impairment side. Again, they list out specific things. Again, this is a list isn't supposed to be all inclusive, but it's just the 
the amount of things on here suggests that the interpretation is that this is a very broad eligibility category. Okay, so major life activity means functions such as caring for oneself, performing manual tasks, walking, seeing, hearing, speaking, breathing, learning, and working. Again, a lot of different things in major life activities, and one of them being learning, which is very helpful for our purposes. Okay, so now we'll talk a little bit about the other two, regarded as having an impairment, and uh, we'll just go through that first. Um, and so here's, a, I guess, the best example I can think of. So if, if you know, and hopefully everybody's familiar with Ryan White. I, you know, I grew up in Indiana and I think I'm a few years younger than him. So I would then, you know, definitely go to the Children's Museum in downtown Indianapolis a lot, which they have a whole Ryan White display. So I'm very familiar with it, but basically Ryan White was a student in the, I would say like late 80s who contracted AIDS through a blood transfusion or had a, got contracted HIV through blood transfusion. Uh, AIDS and was not allowed to go to school sort of you know at that time there's a lot of misconceptions about transmission um, and then it was kind of a big deal and he and his mom for stuff for rights got him back into school um, and um, so anyways if you're not familiar with the Ryan White story but let's just say that there was somebody like Ryan White but they didn't actually have HIV or AIDS right but everybody thought they did um, you you know you <laughs> it sort of wouldn't be a an excuse to say oh i i was actually okay kicking him out of school because he didn't actually have aids like the regarded as kind of counts for that um so to me that's the easiest one to understand but maybe more like a modern times example would be um a mental illness you know we talk a lot about uh, there's big movement to, and, and stigmas around mental illnesses uh, thankfully that's the case but if somebody didn't actually have a mental illness, but still kind of suffered all the negative effects from other people um, regarding them as having a mental illness, that then this uh, statute protects them as well. So um, that's kind of the purpose of that. Um, so child child find is, is a term that you'll hear a lot, again, with uh, on the other side on uh, IDA or, um, but, but this, term child find is, is actually a part of 504 as well. So basically that means the school does have a uh, an obligation to uh, kind of like search out to see if, if people need a 504 plan or not or, and do evaluations on students that they believe uh, need services due to disabilities. Uh, unlike, this is a difference with 504 and IDA, the school actually doesn't, doesn't have to conduct an evaluation if the parents request one. But again, with the 504 requirement, if there's reason to believe that the student has a disability, then they're required to do this evaluation. And again, here we get into the issues with just sort of more general rules. The evaluation has to be conducted within a reasonable time. So there's no sort of like automatic 50-day requirement. Um, and reevaluations need to be done periodically. Um, and before a change of placement, and we'll, we'll talk about this later on, we get to the discipline section, but that this section on, on reevaluations with change of placement, including disciplinary changes of placement, is where kind of like the, the uh, reasoning behind how 504 has um, what manifestation rules are, like you can't change placement 
uh, if something is, is uh, if the behavior is related to the disability. And again, we'll talk about that a little bit more later on. Okay, so 504 plan, again, if you look at the sort of overall goal of, of 504s, um, it's reasonable accommodations give students with disabilities the same access to the benefits of a publication of a public education as all other students. Um, so that's that's why 504 plans exist, and that's what the services in a 504 plan are designed to get to. Um, so plans must have aids and services that meet the educational needs of people with disabilities as adequately as needs people without disabilities take place in appropriate education setting and are based on appropriate evaluation. Again, kind of general rules, but if you think about what's in an IEP, um, I mean, a lot of this, there's definitely some overlap here. And, it, you know, at, at this point, some of the kind of terms that you'll hear um, from, again, IDA are actually terms in 504 plans as well. So there is, um, the language of free appropriate public ed education is actually in the regulations, least restrictive environment. And for those not familiar with that, uh, basically in special ed law, there's this idea that if this, the student can be uh, you know, educated appropriately in, in a gen ed setting, that's kind of the starting point. And, they, and then, um, you know, so like in a regular gen ed classroom with peers in their age group, you know, with, with non-disabled peers in their age group, uh, that's the starting that's preferred um, and then you, know, you kind of work your way to more restrictive settings as appropriate from there so maybe um, and, and by the way that includes getting services to allow you that, that student to be in that environment so you may go from there to mostly in a gen ed setting to some time in a resource room to to most time in a resource room to a separate classrooms or like all the way down to like more and more restrictive settings but the, you know it if the less least restrictive environment is appropriate, then then you start with that one. Um, so there's a preference for less restrictive. Um, so that concept is in 504 plans as well. Um, and then decisions must be made by a group of knowledgeable persons. So that's gonna sound a lot like a case conference committee in, in IEP terms. And again, these are all things that are uh, in the regulations for 504 themselves. I've got the citations below. And, and Keith, this is Kathy. May I yeah. ask a question or interject something? Absolutely. The piece um, on the last slide about a group of knowledgeable people. Yeah. I, I found sometimes schools will go ahead and make that determination without the parent being a part of that group necessarily. And I know that 504 doesn't define who those people are. Yeah. I believe they kind of weigh the Office for Civil Rights has perhaps kind of weighed in on the fact that parents should be considered. Yeah, I don't know if I have, maybe if you do, just <laughs> I, I don't know if I have the like exact like piece of guidance that, that says that parents are supposed to be a part of that, but I think it's safe to say that you know a parent would be a knowledgeable person about their student, right? I mean, that'd be a pretty tough argument to sort of make the counter argument to that, but I. Off the top of my head, I'm not, I don't know if I can point to exactly where it says that. So if you happen to know that, that would be great. Maybe it's in this, um, we just switched to the parent and educate resource guide in 504. Maybe it's somewhere in there, I'm, I'm not sure. But I, I would just say, look, I, I think you're pretty safe in saying that, that a parent is part of the group of knowledgeable people. 
Yeah, I, I don't think it actually says parents have to be there. It's not like it's yeah. a rule, but yeah. it suggested that parents right. should be or could be considered. Yeah, but if, I mean, if you're a parent, you're saying, I want to be part of this group because I feel like I'm a knowledgeable person about my own child. I, I think it would be a little tricky to, for a school to argue the opposite of that, right? That like, no, they're actually not very knowledgeable about their um their child. I mean, I guess maybe in some weird circumstance <laughs> that might be true, but I think it's sort of a general rule um, that seems like pretty safe ground to, to, to argue. Okay, on. thanks. Yeah. This is Jill. We do have another uh, statement on um, our Facebook page, if you wouldn't sure. mind. It says, wouldn't it be an automatic evaluation if the school knows a child is on ADHD, ADHD medication? considering they're giving out the medication at lunch, how can they not know that there must be some issue if medications are required? Schools seem to be more on top of these students during primary school, but once they move on to middle and high school, they begin to self-medicate and having numerous teachers lessening the chance of catching the changes. The counselors at the school have more than just the 504 or IEP students. How can this be addressed? Um, okay, so from a broad perspective of the school, like we talked about has this ongoing child find obligation. And this is true, again, I feel like you need to look at these questions, at least talk about the IDA side of things too, but child find is a term in both IDA and 504, right? So there is an ongoing obligation to identify students with, with disabilities who might need these services and, and evaluate them. So I guess the question is like, well, if, if you're getting medication for an ADHD, wouldn't that be kind of like this, beat the requirements of the, you know, that they might have this uh, disability that, that would make them eligible? How could they sort of like not do an evaluation then? And I mean, I would tend to agree that would certainly suggest that maybe an evaluation is necessary. Um, you know, I, I think, I mean, is there like a theoretical argument that some student with, with that takes ADHD meds, basically the meds allow them to function sort of like just regular gen ed student and they don't actually need a 504 plan or IDA. I mean, I think that's at least theoretically possible, but then, but, but the, I think the standard or the bar is pretty low to just do an evaluation. Like, you know, just because you do an evaluation doesn't suggest the results. So, I mean, I think I agree with the questioner that that certainly would seem to trigger a need to do an evaluation. Um, but from a practical standpoint, I, I mean, I guess as a parent or an advocate for that student, um, I, I wouldn't necessarily just kind of like wait for that to happen. I mean, I, th I think certainly, you know, if you send an email to, you know, a teacher or the special ed person or even the 504 coordinator, as we'll talk about later, saying like, hey, I think, my student might need a 504, you know, they're, they have ADHD, they're taking ADHD medication, I'd like them evaluated. Um, you know, that's, that that would seem to be like, you know, just taking that advocacy step would make it uh, much more like, you know, more likely that you're gonna get the evaluation because then everybody's sort of put on notice. Um, uh, so, and again, with, with 504, it's not like there's a regulation that out there that says, you know, that, that requires, um, every time somebody's on ADHD medicine, the school has to do an evaluation. Like, and these are general general rules. You have to kind of look at the, the, the general principles and, and apply it to the situation. So 
Um, I think applying to the situation, a lot of times, like the outcome would be that, that they should have an evaluation. Um, but it, it just from a practical standpoint, it makes it a lot easier, I think, if, if you lay that out in an in, in, in email or some sort of written document to the appropriate school person and, and kind of your reasons why you think an evaluation is necessary. Um, so this is, uh, so if you look at the bottom, um, Parent and Educator Resource Guide to Section 504 in Public Elementary and Secondary Schools from the U.S. Department of Ed. It's a very useful document um, as far as understanding 504 plans. Um, and this kind of spells out their statement on, on the need for services under a 504 plan. Um, and you know, basically just says that, that, that a student is entitled to special education and related services um, designed to meet their individual needs. Um, again, this is language that is, is fairly similar to what you will see in at least a general language for uh, IDEA. Uh, Keith, I have another question. Um, yeah. It says, so in relation to regarding as having, yeah. um, uh, does that mean that if a student does not have a diagnosed impairment, such as anxiety, for example, but takes a long time to complete tests and consistently does not finish both classroom and standardized tests, they could qualify for a 504 plan because they are similar to a child that is diagnosed with anxiety and also consistently require additional time for uh, testing to complete the tests. You, you may want to open your chat box and, <laughs> and have a look at that. Would you like for me to- Sure, yeah, let me, let me do that. Um, so, okay, I, I think that you're on to something with like, hey, this student probably should get services, but I don't think regarded as is the way to do it. Um, and here's why, because regarded as means it's, it's kind of like you are being discriminated against based on people's belief that you have a disability, um, even if you, regardless of whether you have one or not. Um, where um, I think in this case, what, what we're saying is this person actually does have a, uh, I guess under the terms of the, the regulation, a mental impairment that, that limits their ability to access education, right? I mean, that's the argument, um, but the testing just hasn't shown that yet. So I think the answer to that is to get better testing, right? I mean, if um, you're get, uh, you know, so um, in other words, the, the problem is almost that like they're not regarding them as, as having a disability rather than that they are regarding them as, as having a disability. So to get testing that shows like, hey, this is what, you know, this, is is something that's like legitimate that is interfering with the student's ability to get get an education. Let me go into chats to make sure I answer, answered all that. Or um, since I'm sharing my screen, I'm having a little trouble getting to chat. But uh, does, I don't. Would you like for me to read it. that again? Would that help? Yeah, or, or just I don't know if you do you feel like I answered all the parts, or there's something I'm missing, or. Yeah, because basically you're saying they're not they're not regarding this child as having yeah. a disability who really doesn't have one. We're not quite comparing yeah. the, the same thing, but you made the point that maybe this child needs to be 
potentially evaluated or considered for evaluation if there are some ongoing issues. Yeah, yes, I think that's, yeah. Okay. All right. Um, okay, so with 504 plans specifically, um, Again, we talked about this group of knowledgeable people that, that sounds a lot like a case conference committee. Um, so again, with the general rules, there, there's not a uh, like space written out where it says like, you know, that like these are the circumstances where this group has to meet uh, like, like there is um, in IDA, but um, there's this kind of like reasonableness periodic standard. Um, and uh, Again, there does there isn't like a list. Actually, there isn't really a list of of services in IDA either. But there's no official like list. Like, hey, these are the services that, that are required or not required. That you have to kind of choose from. Uh, but it's more of like what, from a general standpoint, what what is required to allow this person to access um, education. And again, that's there's there's also no like for lack of a better term, like ceiling of services either. And I think that's kind of a common misperception of 504 um, that, you know, if a certain, if a student needs a certain level of services, well, we can't do that under a 504, um, you know, like they would have to have an IEP for that. that. There's just no legal basis for that. I mean, I think there is in practical terms, if, if you're need a certain level of services, you're almost definitely gonna be eligible for um, an IEP and you might choose to go that route. But there's no legal like ceiling to services under a 504. Um, you know, you, the, there's no reason that you couldn't, um, you know, have a student in a resource room with a 504 plan or, or um, you know, any sort of like higher level of, of intervention. Um, so it's it's definitely a minimal requirement, not a maximum requirement. Uh, okay. I, Auxiliary aids um, are, are required. So this is again straight out of the, the regulations, and um, so these are just kind of like a list of uh, or examples of auxiliary aids. Might be large print materials, Braille, assistive learning devices. You know, like nowadays, like an iPad <laughs> seems like an auxiliary aid for a whole lot of different um, situations. So that is directly mentioned in in 504. Uh, regulations as far as uh, things that, that could be required under a 504 plan. And this one's important, I, I feel like, so um, you, the student may not be excluded on the basis of disability from participating in extracurricular activities. And just in my mind, I think it's easier sometimes to think of that as it's almost like its own separate thing. So, um, you know, the uh, you know, marching band um, is a school activity um, that, that has its own sort of 504 rights to it. So the student with disability has a right to participate in the marching band. And part of that means, you know, that do they need, uh, you know, extra support with that or extra, extra services. Um, and, and um, you know, so, so you can't, certainly can't just straight up discriminate and say like, we're not gonna have, you know, students with autism in our marching band, but but also all the other kind of requirements of 504 of having these, um, you know, accommodations to allow the student to participate would, would um, work for that as well. 
again, just kind of like other things that can be part of 504 plans here. Um, you know, you certainly can't have an all inclusive list, but again, the, the concept of if IDA didn't exist, there, there's no reason why some of these kind of like services that you see more typically in IDA um, couldn't be part of 504. Again, 504 was created before, it was not created as a sort of like thing to do if you don't qualify for an IEP. Um, I, I put a slide on this because it seems like we get a lot of cases where the main issue is is bullying or sort of mistreatment from other um, classmates. That you know that's true in, in 504 cases as well as as IDA. But there is a, a dear colleague letter, which basically means um, it's a series of, kind of like position statements that the federal Department of Ed puts puts out where they talk about that the bullying can be addressed through through 504 plans. Um, so, um, you know, if you have a, a, a student who's being bullied for you know, part of their, and either it's more difficult to them to respond to the bullying because of a disability or they're being bullied because of a disability, um, it certainly would be appropriate for a, uh, a 504 plan to address how that student can, can handle, um, bullying. Okay, so discipline, um, and again, with sort of this overall theme of, if you look at um, IDA or Article Seven, there, there's very, very specific rules on 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 discipline, um, and you know you can re read the regulations, and you you know there's deadlines and requirements and all that. Where if you look at 504, there, there just isn't. But um, the concepts I think are largely still there. So there's a 10-day change of placement rule. Um, so from, from a disciplinary, and again, the idea being is, okay, you're a student with a disability. So if you change that student's placement, right, you expel them, say, um, and the reason that they were expelled was actually something that was related to their disability, and then you're, in effect, denying them access to education for something that's disability-related. So that is kind of the overall uh, you know, conceptual idea in, in, in both sets of law. Um, but uh, where you get to that with 504, is, so in other words, if you're expelled, their, their, their placement has been changed. We have to look at, at whether that was related to their, their disability or not. If it was related to their disability, then the chances are you cannot change their placement for something disability related. Um, how you figure out that is the, the term manifestation. Uh, so is the disability a manifestation, or is the behavior a manifestation of their disability? Um, I think kind of like the, the IDA definition of substantially related to um, or caused by would, would generally work here as well. Um, and again, if you looked at that, that um, the section on evaluation, so once a change of placement happens or the person, student's been, their placements have changed for more than 10 days, then there's this requirement to do um, an evaluation and see if that's appropriate. And so that's kind of the, um, how we get to that from, from 504 law. But in, in practice, it's kind of the same thing. So if, if a student is being suspended for more than 10 days or expelled, then you have to have this meeting where you determine whether the behavior is a manifestation or not. Um, the one difference uh, between IDA and 504 is in IDA, there are still a lot of rights for a student who has been expelled or they have, they have to um, 
continue in their gen ed classes. They have to be able to work on their IEP goals. And, and that unfortunately does not exist in, in 504. Um, so that is one, one major difference between the two. Keith, I have a question if you wouldn't mind. Yeah. Yep. So if a student is has a 504 and they have done something that the school has deemed to be um, um, up for a manifestation determination, mm -hmm. so do they automatically have to have that conversation about doing a reevaluation or do they just have to do a reevaluation for that child? Um. Uh, so I, I, I think, and again, this is where, because everything is written so generally, I don't know if I can point to something that, that's, that's real clear. So there's kind of like the two separate requirements. One is for this, you know, what we could call a case conference committee, but the group of knowledgeable people to meet, and then there's also the, the requirement to do an evaluation. So the section on evaluation says, if you've changed the placement, then you have to do another evaluation. I would also say that if you change settings, like that would trigger this need for this, this group of people to meet, um, you know, and then that's where that requirement would be. And again, that the, the, the parent for an evaluation to be sort of valid, then you would need input from a lot of people, including say the parents to, to figure out whether um, this was a manifestation or not. So it's, it's kind of one of those things where, you know, it's not like, Article seven, where you can just look at this and say, okay, well, these are who people have to be there. This is what a manifestation determination review is supposed to look like. But I think between those two, there's a pretty good case to be made that there should be a meeting followed by this evaluation of whether um, the behavior was a manifestation or not. Um, so, but yeah, unfortunately it's just not as spelled out. Um, but, I, but I think kind of relying on the conceptual framework of it that, that both should occur. Okay, and, and, and if you wouldn't mind, indulge me for just a minute. I have yeah. one more question. Um, so whenever we have a manifestation determination yeah. in the 504 conference, the person that is um, the 504 coordinator, um, th they come in and if the parent doesn't feel like that they have the qualifications as far as um, Maybe they, this child has ADHD, but they don't feel like the, um, the coordinator has enough qualifications to have that conversation about the manifestation determination. Can the parent ask for somebody that's an expert in that area to be there or um, somebody that's more knowledgeable than that person to be there? Sure, well, and, and again, so under um, IDEA, there is a whole section on who can come to a case conference or not. And the parents have this clear right to invite outside experts to case conferences and the case conference committee has to determine, you know, has to at least consider those, um, you know, the, every, that, that evidence, they don't necessarily have to follow, but they have to consider it. So like, that's kind of the conceptual background of this, right? So here again, we're dealing with more just general terms. So I, I would say, you, you know, you could kind of contest it on two grounds. Like one is, the, the school didn't actually have this group of knowledgeable persons ever meet if the, nobody has an expert in like in, expert, any expertise in autism and they just sort of say, well, we don't think it's related to their autism, right? I mean, that would seem like they never had this group of knowledgeable people meet. And then like 
the other argument would be like, well, if we had this person there willing to come and you deny them, you know, <laughs> deny their uh, even going to the meeting, then yeah, I mean, that seems like that's just, uh, you know, bad from an evidentiary standpoint. So I think, yeah, I mean, those are definitely arguments you can make, you know, again, unfortunately, it's just not as black and white as, as to like, this is automatically a violation if, if you didn't let the that person come in, I, I think, but ultimately, it, it I, I think you'd show that they just didn't really consider good evidence when they're making the decision, so it'd be easier to contest it. Okay, thank you. Um, all right, so th this slide is just to show that there are procedural rights um, associated with 504. Again, this is from this Department of Ed document. Um, it's on the, the US DOE website. It's a very good resource for Section 504. This is what it has to say um, uh, about uh, procedural safeguards. Um, and then with procedural safeguards, um, there's a 504 coordinator. Uh, these are kind of like their main roles, but again, that this is somebody the school has to have in place that ensures that the compliance that um, the personnel are informed about um, kind of 504 rules and, and, and what constitutes um, discrimination. They have to create their own procedural safeguards and a grievance procedure, we you know, talked about that you know, a little bit generally, but there is this right to an impartial review that's conducted by the, the school themselves. Um, and they're supposed to conduct the self-evaluation to ensure compliance. And, and Keith, regarding those procedural safeguards, yeah. um, is it true that schools should make those available to all parents, including and parents that have children with a 504 plan so that they do in fact understand what that appeals process or grievance process might be? Yeah, and again, I, it might be out there. I don't know if I could point to where like, like that's specified. I mean, if, if you know, <laughs> let me know. But I, I think just from a just sort of like general um, thought process, if you have procedural safeguards, um, but you don't tell anybody about them, then do you really have procedural safeguards? You know what I mean? Like <laughs> that, right. um, that there, there has to be sort of, uh, you know, informed, uh, yeah. So um, in an IEP meeting, as, as some people are probably aware of, like they, the school is required to pass out the procedural safeguards that are, you know, written by the Department of Ed, Indiana's Department of Ed at the beginning of, of the meeting. Um, so, but yeah, I mean, I think, it will be a procedural safeguard in and of itself to make sure people are aware of your procedural safeguards. Um, and again, I don't know if I, I I'm not, I'm not 100% sure if I can, if there is something out there that points to that directly, I, I just would be shocked if just from a logical standpoint, if that wasn't part of it. Um, and so would, would it be fair to say to encourage parents um, that if you do have a 504 plan for your student or are pursuing one, encourage them to contact the school to ask for that policy or those procedures? Yeah, I, I would think so. Yeah, I mean, and it, you know, maybe you just start by doing a uh, quick web search and see if you can find it on the school's website. But yeah. Um, yeah, I, I would think that that would be something that you could ask for and they should provide. And if, and if they're unwilling to, to provide it, I mean, that would obviously raise red flags. Um, and, and I guess something along that line, just sort of thinking out loud here is, 
um, schools are, you know, again, we're talking about public schools here, uh, public entities. So they're, they're subject to, um, uh, you know, laws that have to do with, um, that, that they can't keep in general documents private. So if they have this procedure, um, and you ask for it, um, you, they, they'd be required to, to provide it. But I, I don't think you would have to go into that, um, you know, like that whole legal process. But I mean, but, um, you know, so I, I don't think that'll be a problem, but for some reason it, it is, you can make a public records request and, and um, there isn't any magic to it. Just say like, I'm asking for this as a, as a public record that you have and then um, they require to turn it over. But I, I don't think that, you know, you would have to get in up to all that to get it. Um, okay, so impartial hearing, um, are an opportunity for participation by the parent or guardian and representation by counsel. Um, and again, this is something that, that, that the school itself would provide. Um, there is certainly outside area ways to look at it. Um, we touched on about this briefly earlier on, but you can file complaints with the Federal Department of Education Office of Civil Rights. Uh, there is a 180 day um, time limit. Like I said, there, there are ways to, to um, take a 504 case into, into regular court. There are some, I think you get to that stage, I would strongly advise uh, you know, talking to an attorney because there are some procedural hurdles. I, I talked about this concept of exhaustion where if you can go through the IDA's um, administrative procedure, you, know, you, you have, in a lot of cases, you have to do that before you file in court, which uh, you might need to, <laughs> you know, talk to an attorney about how to, how all that works, because it, it can get kind of complicated. But, um, but this, the, the um, complaint with the Office of Civil Rights, um, you know, you don't, you know, it might be helpful to have an attorney help you draft it, but that's certainly not required. It's, I think it's set up in a way that people who don't have attorneys can can file these complaints. Um, I, you know, you hear different things about um, how quickly um, you get responses back on, on this, and I'm not quite sure exactly where they're they're at right right now. But um, um, you know, obviously they, they get a lot of complaints. So um, you know, but but I, I mean, I, I've used this, and we've gotten a decision, a positive decision before um, that had actually pretty substantial change to what, what the school had to do as a result of it. So it, it definitely can work. Um, so again, IDR, Indian Display Rights, we can handle education cases um, involving 504 or uh, Article 7. Uh, that's our intake uh, information. And just kind of recap, uh, we talked about 504 generally, eligibility, 504 plans, uh, discipline, and then complaints and appeals. Um, I know we've been doing questions as we go along, but um, certainly if anybody has more questions now, I'd be happy to uh, at least attempt to answer them. <laughs> and there's my contact information again. And again, this is my cell phone and my email, so pretty good way to get hold of me. Okay, great. Well, thank you so much. Um, oh, Margaret has posted, can you send us a link to the Dear Colleague letter regarding bullying and students with disabilities? I may be able to find it on our website. 
Yeah. I've got it. I'm getting ready to post it. Oh, okay, good. good. Thank I, you. I was just going to say, that, that's, <laughs> that, that, that was a lesson number one from that 504 presentation we did, whatever it was, four or five years ago. So uh -huh. um, I, I thought that might be a little bit hard to find. So I'm glad you found it so quick. I was kind of nervous when that right. question was asked. So. Right. Yeah, I've already yeah. posted it in the attendee or the um, chat box. Perfect. Right. And okay. I did post in the chat box the CFR. I think that's the federal code about. Yeah. It states that parents could be an important source of information to the school district about what techniques, interventions, services, and supports would be most effective in meeting that student's needs. And that was in relation to our discussion about the. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's great. Yeah, I, I'd forgotten so, that was out there. So, yeah. Right. And so there, that is the citation in the chat box. And, and I also posted a link back to our website for the parent an educator's guide to section 504 for um, elementary and secondary schools. So if you want to go there, you can go to our website and, and it's a fabulous, it's a book. <laughs> what can I say? It's 45, 50 pages long, but lots of great information there too. And I see Jill has posted the Dear, Dear Colleague link um, regarding uh, 504 and bullying. So and please- I just posted the, uh, the book also in the link. Okay. Okay. Great. Okay. Great. Yeah. So please folks be sure and grab those and snag them off the, the chat box um, that you'll find those to be immensely helpful. And uh, this is Keith. Oh, go ahead. Kathy, we just have a couple things in the chat or in the question and answer box if you want to address those. Oh, I wasn't even looking there. I was busy chatting in the chat box. <laughs> Uh, will this webinar be online for future viewing? Yes, it will. We actually have an, an archived version from uh, four or five years ago, Keith, whenever you joined us last. But yeah. yes, one will, at a point in the near future, I can't assure you a date when it will be on our website, but it, it will be there. And then there is a question uh, about if eligibility is based on proving a substantial limitation in a major life activity or learning, um, how is that substantial limitation supposed to be proved? Can parents argue that Bs, meaning the academic grade Bs, are a substantial limitation? Okay, so, and again, with the idea that the way courts have interpreted substantial limitation is, including the U.S. Supreme Court, is to be interpreted very broadly. So, like most, you know, it's it's not, yeah, you know, it isn't supposed to be used as sort of like a way to try and kind of like trickily kick people out of the, uh, the, the program. So, I mean, that that is a backdrop, like there's, you know, that the court decisions are kind of in your favor to have it be counted as a substantial life activity. So um, grades, okay, so a student is getting Bs and I think like what the analysis would be is how is that impacting your education? So like, you know, I guess there's obviously students who are don't have any disability, they, they get Bs, um, but that doesn't mean that, you know, that, that you're ineligible. If you get these or you don't have a disability, right? So, I mean, the, the question is, how does whatever disability you have impact your education? And so maybe it impacts it because, um, you know, with, without your disability, you would be getting A's. Or maybe, like I said before, um, you know, you have some sort of learning disability, but the student has kind of found a way to cope with it on their own. Um, 
you know, maybe dyslexia for, for example, but um, they're sort of like coping mechanism, you know, there's sort of like better ways to handle it, right? So if, if they didn't have, um, you know, if, if they got effective services for again, like dyslexia, then maybe, maybe they get A's or maybe they go from trying to spend, you know, three hours a night doing homework to one, you know, like if they're, I guess a dyslexia example, maybe they, they struggle through with B's, but it takes them forever to read something because, um, you know, it just takes longer where if they had appropriate services for that, um, then, then, it, then it wouldn't take as long. So, I mean, I certainly don't think that from a school standpoint, you could use the fact that a student is getting B's as like a disqualifying factor. So I, I think, again, that's part of a, a larger picture. And, and Keith, typically C's are considered to be average, correct? A C would typically be considered to be an average grade where yeah. like many kids, yeah, so, okay. Yeah, and then, I mean, do you have anything to add to that? I mean, you, you, you kind of see more of those, like how, how, how would you approach a student with getting these and that like- that Well, thing? you know, whether through article seven or IDEA or five, yeah. well, you know, learning could, you know, for, I, for IEP, certainly there has to be an adverse impact on educational performance, yeah. but there's also a functional piece. So sometimes educational piece is okay, but the functional is not. Whereas 504, it's very broadly defined as that's a, a substantial limitation in a major, one or more major life activities. Learning could be one of those as could breathing, walking, talking, you know, there's a whole lot there, but if if the, you're approaching it from, you know, my child's only making B's and I think he, he's capable of making A's, I'm not sure that, I mean, the, the school would have to talk about it through that evaluation process, but there's got to be some evidence, as I understand, that there is, in fact, a substantial limitation um, in, in academics, and I'm not sure that B would necessarily a B grade would necessarily qualify. Again, not my call to make, that's um, the team's decision, but I, I think it might be challenging. Yeah, so um, there's a statement, it's good to know that good grades are not a disqualifying factor for qualifying for 504. 504 is, uh, you know, a lot of these, a lot of kids qualify because of health or mental impairments and grades aren't always necessarily impacted, though they can be, yeah. behavior certainly can be, their attendance at school can certainly be, so it's so much broader. Right, and that, that's a good point, because like, you know, with, with an IEP, you, you know, a lot of time, well, you have to have goals, and you have to have this, you know, these other things, like where a 504 could be as simple as kind of like a health plan, right, the student goes, um, they need insulin at lunch, you know, they have just diabetes, they have in insulin, and so like, obviously, if they didn't get the insulin shot, right, that would inhibit their ability to get an education, you know, because they were, their blood sugar would be all out of whack. Um, so, um, you know, like under that, that theory where you might not have a category uh, with IDA that you qualify under, but to go to the nurse's station to help with your insulin shot, you know, after lunch would be a pretty clear cut 504 uh, plan issue. Yeah. And, and I just strongly encourage folks to download that resource guide that we've posted in the chat box because it explains information very well, examples, um, and, and I think maybe it, it will, you know, things might be even more clear 
after reviewing that. We're all about providing resources, so please take advantage of that. And Keith, thank you so much again for, for joining us. Um, just a reminder in the chat box, there we've provided a link to a video on protection and advocacy services. It's a YouTube video, that resource guide, I posted that link, um, or not the link, but the uh, uh, federal code regarding um, parents having being knowledgeable or having good things to uh, information to provide um, for regarding 504s to school districts and what have you. So there's a citation there. And uh, Jill did also send the dear colleague letter or attached it uh, uh, regarding bullying and students with disabilities. So we've got lots of great resources and I hope that you'll all um, take advantage of that. Kathy, I just want to um, thank our Facebook Live viewers. I am going to stop the live feed for now, but I just wanted to make sure that they uh, know that we appreciate them attending today. And um, so I'm going to stop it. Okay.